Skyborn, Episode 14, Liar, Liar, by K.G. Lockrams. The summer before I left my home for my junior year of college, the summer I would meet Michael, my sister began an affair with her boss, Manny. She had left her first job out of college, a big four accounting firm, to take a job as the comptroller for his regional tire chain that operated in over a dozen states. It was headquartered close to her home and the university she had attended, which I was about to attend. My sister would occasionally share with me high-level details of their affair. He had told her he wasn't happy in his marriage and that he was going to file for divorce. As far as I know, she lost her virginity to him. I didn't judge her. I wanted her to be happy. But we had both seen the damage our father's philandering had done to his marriage, to our mother, and to us. So I was surprised by her choices. She could be incredibly judgmental, but she always seemed to have a strong moral compass and notoriously held herself and others to exacting standards. I struggled to understand her actions and worried about what I believed would be the inevitable outcome for her. Heartbreak and sorrow. She brought Manny home to meet our mother that summer. Not the family, just our mother. I met him only because I happened to be home. Our brother had been living on his own for a couple of years now. Our father was not in her world in any way, and she did not care what either of them would have thought. He was short, Italian, had a thick head of black hair, olive skin, and wore a lot of gold jewelry. He was also much older than my sister. My first thought was how much he looked like our father. He was easily 10 to 15 years older than she. I was surprised our mother agreed to meet him. Her now ex-husband had cheated on her and left her for another woman. By agreeing to meet this man, it seemed she was implicitly condoning her daughter's behavior, which made no sense to me. I didn't like him, or rather, I didn't like who my sister was around him. It was an uncomfortable visit for all involved. As with watching any disaster unfold, I couldn't bring myself to look away. I'd never seen this side of her. She was being aggressively pleasant to her mother as she showcased Manny's virtues. She was working hard to facilitate a cordial exchange between the two. After a couple awkward hours, they said their goodbyes and left. I don't like him, my mother said as soon as they closed the door. He wears too much jewelry and is too swarthy. And the fact that he's married doesn't bother you at all, I thought. I don't like him either, I said. Why not? I don't like the way she is around him. She's deferential. I've never seen her like that around anyone. I didn't notice, she said. My friendship with Dan drifted away that summer. He had started taking courses at the junior college sometime earlier, but we never saw each other on campus. I attended mostly during the day, and he attended night classes. He and I were now both working at the same retailer. I was on the sales floor, and he was playing clothes security. Although sometimes we'd work the same shift, we couldn't exactly pal around, given the nature of his job. I saw him walking the store one day with a few other security personnel. They were laughing and carrying on. It reminded me of the times he and I had done the same thing, both around the store and the mall in general. Those wasted hours of being together, roaming the mall, were among the happiest days of my life, and I longed for them. We'd been like brothers for years. He and Kathy were clearly headed for the altar. Although Kathy and I had known each other since elementary school, we became truly close after they started dating. Her house was 10 minutes walking distance from mine, and we spent time together, with and without Dan. We spoke on the phone regularly, and she was one of the first people I took for a drive in the car my grandmother had given me. We enjoyed our shared history and one another's personalities. There was no formal falling out. The past I made a day and years earlier was not a physical presence in our friendship. Life was simply carrying us away from each other. I was oddly aware of it as it was happening, and did nothing about it. I began to brace for what I felt would be the inevitable backlash from my coming out. The thought of Dan rejecting me for having finally claimed my true self, it would have devastated me. I felt the less painful path would be to let our friendship slip away. And so, as their orbits drew closer to one another and further from mine, as the space between us became filled with my fear of rejection, as we inevitably drifted away from one another's lives, I did nothing to stop it. Nor did he. The summer ended and I left for my junior year of college. Move-in day was uneventful, and I met my roommates for the first time. They each played a sport for the university. 
Dick played football, and Mark lacrosse. I don't know by what process the university assigned student housing, but the three of us were not well-matched. Dick, an Italian mullet-wearing football player, took one look at me and asked, What position did you play in high school? I was not muscular, but had kept the weight down and had grown another inch. I was now six foot four and broad-shouldered. Mellophone, I answered. He looked confused. I was in marching band, I said. I never played sports. What's your major, he asked. Secondary education mathematics. Good. You can keep supporting the team by helping me with my math. And that was who he was, endlessly assessing what others could do for him and assuming they would do it. Mark was a living Ken doll by Mattel, with blonde hair, ridiculously handsome, and a trim, well-muscled body. In addition to playing lacrosse, he was also a swimmer. As the last to arrive, I got the leftover bed, closet, and desk, and began to unpack. The Garfield bedsheets I had purchased, ironically, suddenly seemed unwise. There was a mandatory new student orientation that afternoon. The speaker said, look at the person to your left. Now look at the person to your right. One of you won't make it to graduation. What a dark tone to set the first day of a new school year. I found myself thinking about how my brother and sister used to tell me I'd be dead before my 21st birthday, which was six months away. When it came time to eat dinner that first night, Dick and Mark were eating with their respective teams, so I went to the dining hall alone. While looking around for a place to sit, I heard a girl call my name. Kit? Kit Lockrams? What are you doing here? Susan! I didn't know you went here. Susan and I had been in high school band together, and she had graduated two years before me. Jonah? What are you doing in our dining hall? I said. There was a mix-up, and I'm living in this dorm now, he said, sounding a bit annoyed. Sit down, Susan said. This is Sarah, my friend and roommate. Susan was short with long, dark brown hair and carried a few extra pounds. Sarah was trim, with long, thick, dirty blonde hair and rosy cheeks. As we ate dinner and got to know each other, I could feel the connections forming between the four of us. The semester officially began the next morning, and I met Joy for coffee before our first class. There was a small coffee shop next to the university's bookstore. I arrived before her and watched her walk toward the building through the front glass. She was carrying a giant canvas beach bag. It left her off balance and gave a waddle to her walk. Joy was a friend from junior college. She was 16 years older than me and the person who talked me into applying to this university, selecting my major, and had told me about the scholarship that allowed me to be here. Hello, she called out as she entered the building. I waved back. When she reached the table, I said, Good morning. Where's the beach? Funny, she said. Remember how you said you wanted me to help you blend in with the younger students? My first piece of advice is, that bag has to go. I think it's nice. It is. It's just working against you. What do you suggest? I pointed to my book bag on the floor next to me. I thought about that, but I didn't want to look like I was trying too hard. Your canvas bag may as well read, Victim here! Victim here! Hey! A book bag will also help you distribute the weight of the books as you're walking from the parking garage to your classes. Well, that makes sense. We went into the bookstore and I helped her pick one out. In exchange for my time and having her back, she bought me a muffin, which became our tradition for the rest of the semester. We'd meet each morning when she was on campus, have coffee, study, and she'd buy me a muffin. Later that day, I was walking across campus between classes. Kit, hold up! A guy called out to me from across the grounds and sprinted to catch up. I didn't know you were going here, he said. He was a skinny guy, about my age, tan, with spiky brown hair and light blue eyes. I had no idea who he was and gave him a blank stare. It's Ray. Still nothing. From high school. Total blank. I'm Dan's friend? Jeez, we went through like four years of school together. You don't remember me? I don't. He seemed genuinely hurt I didn't remember him. I don't know many people on campus, he continued. If you ever want to get together, here's my number. And he sprinted off to wherever it was he'd been going when he first saw me. As I didn't know many people on campus either, I decided to give him a call. We met up for a walk around campus. We knew so many of the same people. He was dating a girl that Elroy and I had used to play with in elementary school. She and Elroy had once tried to teach me Chinese jump rope, but I never could get the hang of it. Ray knew almost everyone I'd known my entire life, 
I couldn't figure out how I didn't know this guy existed. Do you know how to play racquetball? He asked. No, but I've always thought it looked fun. Want me to teach you? Sure. He made a reservation for a campus court, taught me how to play, and proceeded to wipe the court with me. We laughed the entire time, and in that one game, our friendship was formed. I went home that first weekend, called Michael, and he invited me over to his house to hang out with him and his partner. I didn't know what the protocols were for hanging out with a couple when you're fucking one of them. I called my only resource. Paul, what do I do? This is completely out of my experience. Go over, hang out, see what happens. What if Howie gets angry with me? What if Howie wants to have sex with you? I hadn't thought about that. You should. I imagined what that would be like. Howie was close to my father's age, and the idea made me uncomfortable on more levels than I understood. Look, Paul continued, I've known them for a very long time. This is how they've chosen to structure their relationship. If you want to fool around with Michael, you're going to have to learn to navigate Howie. And you need to figure out what you want and what your boundaries are. Given my history, I didn't have boundaries when it came to my body or sex. The sex with Michael was too good not to see him again. I heard, he said. Really? I hadn't thought about that. What did you hear? Everything. What are best friends for? I hear you really... delivered. Oh, God. Okay, I'm hanging up now. I got showered, dressed, and headed for Michael and Howie's place. They lived on the outskirts of town down a long gravel road. It was a small, single-story home that looked a bit like a Sears and Roebuck kit home. I had never been to a gay couple's house before. I had never been to any couple's house before who weren't friends of my parents. To be gay and live with your partner in my town, a town with an active Ku Klux Klan, I'd never heard of a gay couple living together anywhere around here. I had no idea what to expect of them or their home. When I arrived, Howie answered the door. He was probably 25 to 30 years older than Michael. The main door opened onto their eat-in kitchen. Off the kitchen was the living room. Opposite the main door was a hallway to the bathroom and two bedrooms. Michael's in there, Howie said, and motioned toward the living room. The living room had a sofa, coffee table, large TV, and two upholstered chairs, one at each end of the sofa. The walls were lined floor to ceiling with bookshelves packed with movies, books, and collectibles. Hey, Kit, welcome to our home. Have a seat, Michael said and patted the sofa next to him. I sat down. What are you drinking? He asked me. Soda or water is fine. Howie works at the water processing plant. He makes great water, Michael said. Water it is. I was beyond uncomfortable. Howie wasn't the most pleasant person. Most everything he said was a complaint about the world and had the word fuck in it somewhere. I didn't know if it was just who he was or if his attitude was in response to my presence. I didn't understand my motivation in being there. When I would fantasize about finally exploring a relationship with another guy, this was not what that looked like. My years-long fascination with Michael was certainly the foundation of it. Michael was a willing partner and patient teacher. I did my best to ignore the Howie factor, both because I didn't comprehend their relationship and ignoring it was conducive to my goal of getting laid. Michael was doing shots of Jack Daniels. Tonight we're watching All About Eve with Betty Davis. Ever seen it? No. He hit play and the three of us watched in silence. Thankfully, it was a great movie, and I was able to escape the situation by focusing on the story. Just after Betty Davis's character said, Fasten your seatbelts, it's going to be a bumpy night, Howie stood up and disappeared down the hallway toward the bedrooms. He's gone to bed, Michael said, and did a shot. What do you think of the movie? It's well acted. I love it, because in the opening scene, you think you know who everyone is and how they'll behave, but by the end, well, just watch, and he patted my thigh. He leaned against me and put his head on my shoulder. I basked in the nearness of him. When it ended, Michael got up and held out his hand to me. I took it and followed him down the hallway to the bedrooms. I sleep in here, he said, and opened one of the doors. You don't sleep together? Sometimes, but not usually. I was confused and relieved. The fact that they had separate bedrooms made me feel less guilty somehow. Paul had told me this was how they structured their relationship. I'd just never seen, read, or heard anything about this kind of thing. I was simply driven by my hormones and my desire to explore sex with a man I'd spent eight years thinking about. I needed no further prodding to embrace the moment, which I did. The thing I couldn't figure out was whether Michael liked me, cared about me, or was also just in it for the sex. 
He was a good actor, and whenever he said something, I was never sure if he was acting or being sincere. The situation was as jarring as the sex was fantastic. When we finished, we made small talk for a while. I got dressed and went home. While I was brushing my teeth, I discovered the second hickey of my lifetime. What's that on your neck? My mother asked the next morning. A hickey. I can see that. Who gave it to you? I didn't respond, which was new for me. Normally when she'd ask me a question, I felt compelled to answer. But what was there to say? Another lie? I was so sick of lying. You look ridiculous, she said and left the room. I called Ray and asked him if he knew how to get rid of a hickey. You dog, he said. Okay, this doesn't always work, but take a hot shower. Run the water on the hickey and use the smooth side of a comb and go back and forth over it with as much pressure as you can stand for as long as you can stand it. You may want to put a washcloth between the hickey and the comb so you don't hurt your skin. I'm so damn proud of you. I hung up and immediately took a shower. It didn't make it disappear, but sure enough, it helped. When I got back to school, Dick noticed it right away and started writing me about it. He reminded me in all the bad ways of my brother. He was physically intimidating and had an unearned air of superiority. I didn't feel comfortable in Dick's presence, and it started to eat at me. Mark, on the other hand, couldn't have cared less. He just did his own thing. He wasn't rude, he just never allowed himself to be pulled off course. He was focused on his goals. I spent the rest of that week being uncomfortably overdressed and deflecting questions from my new group of friends as to why. Because I didn't like lying if I could avoid it, I never told them I was seeing someone. It was easier to hide the hickey than to create some elaborate backstory. During that first month at school, Ray and I became best friends, drinking buddies, squash partners, and confidants, mostly. We'd sometimes hang out with his girlfriend at her place. The three of us would drink, eat spiced wafer cookies, and be young together. I could see their relationship was unraveling, and it was painful to watch. Also during that first month, my group of friends had grown. Our clique of four was now a pack of nine, one of whom, Virginia, had developed a crush on me. She was good friends with Sarah, who I'd formed a quick and deep bond with. Sarah and Susan kept trying to push Virginia and I together. They both expected me to ask her out, and when I wouldn't, they would arrange scenarios that left Virginia and I alone together. We're not seeing anyone, Susan or Sarah would say. Why won't you just ask her out? Because I'm not interested. But she really likes you. They would say this as if the simple fact of her liking me was the basis for some agreement or contract that I was being held to, which demanded I reciprocate the feelings. When I didn't, they made me feel as if I were being somehow callous or actively rejecting her, which made me feel guilty, which made me want to tell them why I wasn't interested, which made me feel afraid of being rejected, which made me feel like a shitty friend. I was such a pleaser. I felt guilty about keeping my secret. I felt guilty all the time about everything. I knew it would never work out with Virginia. I wasn't interested in her, because, oh yeah, I'm probably gay. Jonah already knew my secret, and I worried about whether or not he'd keep it. I wasn't up for any more disclosures. I didn't want to lie to my new friends, so I just skirted the issue. And I felt guilty for that, too. The shame I carried was exhausting. I shared some of this with Michael one weekend. Your sexuality is a need-to-know piece of information, he said. I didn't agree. I couldn't shake the feeling that withholding the information was an endless lie of omission. I was making friendships I hoped would last a lifetime. I was trying to build a family of choice to fill the void left by my family of blood, and I didn't see how I could be my true self while withholding from them this fundamental piece of who I was. It had always torn me up to hide myself from my friends. At the end of September, I got a call from Carrie. You're never going to believe it, but I'm getting married, she blurted out excitedly when I picked up the phone. What? To who? Robert! Scotland, Robert? Yes. She'd been writing to him since she'd gotten back from her trip in August. He never responded and she'd given up hope, which I was glad for. I felt he was gay and just using her to get into the U.S. I was surprised he hadn't responded. If getting into the U.S. was his goal, she made it clear she was willing to be his gateway through marriage. He called me two days ago, she continued. He hadn't gotten any of my letters due to the postal strike over there. When it got resolved, they all arrived. He read them, called me immediately, asked me to marry him, and of course I said yes. I was speechless and suspicious. 
My cheek under my right eye began to clench, and I couldn't figure out why. What does this mean? Is he coming here? Are you going there? We don't know yet. But he's coming to the States to meet my family, and I'd like you to meet him too. Okay, I said. I wanted to meet this man to find out what his deal was. Although Carrie and I had gotten off to a rough start, she'd become a good friend to me, and I was fiercely protective of my friends. Ray was taken to the ER that weekend. He was drinking at a bar, and someone slipped something into his drink. He passed out in the parking lot, was found right away, and taken to a hospital. He was lucky he wasn't mugged, or worse. Motherfuckers probably wanted to harvest my organs or something, he said when he told me the story. I met Joy for coffee that Tuesday before class. I'm struggling, I told her. How do you mean? With school? With my roommate? He's such an asshole. I recently found out one of my good friends is getting married to a guy I think isn't right for her. I'm not sleeping. I just feel like I'm unraveling somehow, and I'm worried I'm going to lose the scholarship. What I thought was, I don't feel safe in my own space, and oh yeah, I'm having sex every weekend with a man who's seven years older than me, who is in a relationship with another man old enough to be my father. I don't understand why I'm not succeeding. I'm doing great in my education classes, and for the last two years I did great in my computer science and math classes. Now, I've fallen so far behind in calculus, I don't know how to pull up, and we're halfway through the semester. I looked out the window and thought about my horrible high school geometry teacher. I shouldn't have taken so many credits my first semester here, I concluded. And I'm going into a career where I'll have to live a lie the rest of my life, I thought. I never met or even heard of a gay teacher. Can I help? If it's the subject matter, I can figure out a way to juggle my schedule at home and spend more time here and tutor you. She was already commuting two hours round trip every time she came to campus. She was so generous to me with her time and energy. That would be great if you're up for it. Thank you. As for the rest, I can't figure it out. Have you thought about going to the counseling center? Maybe you just need to talk to someone. It's a big adjustment from commuting to a junior college to living on a campus at a big university. From what you've said in the past, your roommate's situation is not the greatest. She was referring to Dick. And the fact that the week before I walked into the room as Mark was playing darts and got hit in the forehead with one, he'd thrown it with such force it stuck in my skull. It wasn't intentional, just a badly placed dartboard too close to the door and bad timing. I'll think about it. At least let me buy you a muffin, she said. I went home that weekend to see Michael and meet Carrie's fiancé. On my way to Michael's that Saturday night, I stopped at the drugstore to buy condoms. I'd been using condoms from the campus health clinic, but had run out. I had no idea there were so many kinds and varieties. I definitely did not want a Trojan, thanks to Pip. And when I saw the brand Mentor, given the context of Michael in my life, it seemed an appropriate first choice. I was embarrassed to buy them, but thought to myself, If you can't buy condoms, then you shouldn't have sex. To which I replied to myself, Screw that, I'm definitely having sex. I grabbed the box and went to the pharmacy counter to check out. The pharmacist turned around and it was Will Haggerty. I could feel the color drain from my face and my heart began to pound in my chest. Hey, aren't you Kit? We used to live in the same neighborhood. I knew exactly who he was. He was the last kid my brother tried to pit me out to when I was in grade school. He was specifically the kid whose house my brother came out of that day. That day, my brother saw me riding my bike to my friend's house who lived across the street from Will. That day, I think my brother may have had to blow him because I wouldn't do it anymore. That day, my brother tried to ram me with his bike, but ended up breaking his own collarbone instead. I know who you are, I said. Oh, I'm glad you remember me. How could I forget, I thought. Looks like you're going to have a nice night, he said and winked at me as he rang up the box of condoms. Do you want a bag? Yes. Hey, take my number, he said and wrote it on the receipt. Call me sometime. Call him sometime? I was conflicted and didn't know how to process that moment or comment. Nothing ever came of it all those years ago, but this was the first time since then that I'd run into anyone other than my brother, even remotely connected to that trauma. He was now 25 and handsome as hell. The muscle under my eye clenched. I left the store and headed to Michael's. When I went into the living room, someone new was there. Hey, Kit, this is Ken, Michael said. Hello, I said. We've actually met. 
Have we? Your father is my pastor. This was beyond weird. We met at church one Christmas a couple years ago. I wouldn't expect you to remember me. Ken was my brother's age, and for the second time that evening I found myself feeling confused. Why was someone else here? Why hadn't Michael told me someone else was going to be here? It was weird enough with Howie being here, and it was his home. Selfishly, I didn't know what Ken's presence meant for my plans to have sex with Michael. How do you two know each other? I asked. We're the leads in the Agatha Christie production at the theater this fall, Michael offered. I stood in the doorway between the kitchen and living room trying to decide if I should stay or go. Howie was in the upholstered chair to my right, nursing a bourbon. Michael was at the far end of the sofa for me. Ken was in the armchair to his left. They were doing shots of Jack Daniels with potato chip chasers. Take off your jacket, Michael said. What are you drinking? Water, I said. Help yourself, Howie said and motioned to the kitchen. He was glowering at Ken behind his tinted, wire-rimmed glasses. I went into the kitchen and put my jacket on the chair closest to the door. I was planning the fastest way out of the house if I needed it. I got a glass of water and returned to the living room. Sit down, Michael said and patted the sofa cushion next to him. Ken was watching me intently, assessing me. I got the clear feeling he knew all there was to know about my arrangement with Michael. What happens here stays here, Ken said and threw back a shot of JD, following it with a potato chip chaser. What was going to happen here? Was that an invitation or a warning? His comment aroused me and made me uncomfortable. We're just about to watch a movie, Michael said and picked up the remote for the VCR. Have you ever seen Heavy Metal? No. It's an animated adult movie and a cult classic, he said and hit play. Howie stood up, drink in hand, crossed the room, and went down the hall to his bedroom without saying a word. The movie began. Ken and Michael continued drinking and eating chips, tossing verbal barbs and food at one another. I couldn't figure out what their situation was, and found myself wondering exactly what my situation was with Michael. The movie was bizarre, but they loved it. I was too conflicted to leave and too bored to stay awake. I went into the kitchen and got a beer from the fridge. A bit later, I got another. I woke to a quiet room lit only by the glow of the TV screen light. Someone was on their knees in front of me, undoing the button of my jeans, then undoing my zipper. Before I could react, my jeans and underwear were around my ankles. They went to bed, Howie said to me quietly. I can't let you go home, blue balled. And he began to suck my cock. I didn't know what to do and froze in the moment terrified and erect as he blew me. After I climaxed, he stood in front of me. Was I expected to return the favor? Go home, he said brusquely and went to the kitchen door. I stood up, pulled up my underwear and jeans, grabbed my jacket from the kitchen chair and exited the house. He slammed the door behind me. I drove home feeling violated. In the span of five hours, I'd met a ghost from my past, had a run-in with my pastor's son at my lover's house, and received a blowjob from a man old enough to be my father who barely tolerated my presence. And again, my cheek muscle under my eye began to clench. I met up with Carrie and Robert the next day. He'd flown over to meet her family and to plan their wedding. Everything about him screamed gay. His hair, his clothing, his affect. I instantly disliked him. He was doing to Carrie exactly what I was trying to avoid doing to a woman. Deceive them to cover my secret. I spent so much time and endured so much heartache trying not to do exactly what he was going to do. And it pissed me off. We've decided to get married at the little chapel in town next month, Carrie said. Great. What else could I have said? And I'd like it if you could sing at our wedding. Oh, that broke my heart. I'd love to. Keep me in the loop about dates. Again, what else could I have said? Everyone made small talk. I played the part of supportive friend, while wondering how or if I should tell her my concerns. Her entire family supported their marriage. In the end, I decided she wouldn't listen, and it wasn't my place, so I kept my thoughts to myself. When I got back to school that evening, I learned Ray had been in a car accident. He drove an old Fiat Spider convertible. I'm lucky to be alive, he told me, looking haunted. What happened? I was coked up. He stopped talking immediately. He hadn't meant to say that. I thought you gave that up. I'm trying, he said and started to shake. I went over to him and hugged him. 
You're the only person who accepts me for who I am, he said and hugged me back. You never ask me to change. You never give me shit for my behavior. You just... And he searched for the right next words. Love you, I said. I just love you. Yeah, you do. I love you too. And he gave me another big hug. All right, so what happened? He took a deep breath and told me, while high on coke, he was driving too fast. A deer crossed the road in front of him. He lost control trying to avoid it and rolled the car. He ended up locked in place by the seatbelt, wrapped around a tree. I hit the tree so hard, he said and pulled up his shirt. Holy shit. He had a dark bruise exactly in the outline of his seatbelt. I shit my pants from the force of it. We looked at each other somberly and both burst out laughing. Okay, that's not really funny, I said. No, no, it's not, he said, getting himself under control. My car is totaled. I really am lucky to be alive. That week, I started writing him a letter. I worked on it when Mark and Dick were out of the room and kept it stashed in the back of my desk drawer, along with my journal and a letter I'd gotten from Paul. Ray's comment about me being the only person in his life who accepted him made me want to let him know about my struggle with my sexual orientation. I wanted him to know me, and I yearned for his acceptance of who I really was. My intention was to give it to him before we went home for Thanksgiving, so we could talk about it over the break. When I went home the next weekend, I called Will. My curiosity was killing me. Although I never blew him, my brother had made the arrangements for it to happen, and I wanted to know if he remembered anything. I wanted to find out if my brother had, in fact, blown him in my place. He was also damn handsome, and I was a little more than a walking erection looking for experiences. Why would he have given me his number, given our weird history, if he wasn't angling for something to happen? I found myself wondering what it would be like to be with him as peers. He invited me over that afternoon. He was wearing a tracksuit, and kept tucking at his crotch and making vague sexual references. The only thing that saved me from doing anything with him was I didn't understand what it was he was hinting at. He couldn't bring himself to come right out and say that he wanted to do something, and I couldn't risk asking. So I learned nothing, and left as confused as when I'd arrived. And that spasm under my eye started again. When I got home, I called Michael and made plans to come over that night, and I satisfied my needs with him. Over the coming weeks as Thanksgiving break approached, my grades continued to slip, and I withdrew from one of my math classes. My motivation to be a teacher seemed inversely related to my progress in getting comfortable with coming out. As I gave more thought to what my life would be like as a gay man in public education, my interest in being a teacher declined. I couldn't see having gone through so many years of soul-searching, only to end up back in the closet I was trying so hard to escape. The tension between Dick and I had become intolerable. I needed help, and I made an appointment with the college's counseling center. There was so much stigma around mental health care, it was not an easy decision for me to reach. I didn't expect to find allies. I also didn't like making myself vulnerable, but I was having suicide ideation, and the stakes were too high. The university and my scholarship were my one shot at getting through college. I couldn't screw it up. Bringing myself to make the appointment was almost as difficult as walking through the door for my first session, which they canceled as soon as I walked through said door for my 7 a.m. intake appointment. I'm sorry, we're overloaded. The holidays. We can't see you until the week after Thanksgiving, but between now and then, we can refer you to psychiatric services so you can be seen this week. I didn't like the sound of psychiatric services. I could hear my mother that morning in 8th grade. Are you a faggot? Because if you are, we can get you fixed. I didn't need fixing. I needed support. Fine, I told the scheduler, and they set up an appointment for the following day. The doctor I saw completely alienated me. She kept interjecting her feelings and opinions during our session, rather than asking me questions and helping me identify solutions that worked for me. She had her own agenda, and in response, I shut down and let her lecture me for the rest of my session. I didn't have the strength to leave and sitting through it seemed the path of least resistance. That night, Susan and Sarah had a bunch of us over for beer. Ray and I arrived together, as we did for most things. Virginia proceeded to tell everyone that there was a rumor going around, that he and I were lovers. What? Ray asked. The girl that's always making out with Dick in Kit's room is in one of my classes, and she told me. Virginia looked at Ray and I expectantly. 
We looked back. Well, knowing that you are not gay, I asked her what she meant by that, and she said Dick had found some letter in Kit's desk that proved you and Ray are lovers. I am so naive, I thought. Of course Dick goes through my things. Well, she asked. Well, what? I asked back. Are you two lovers? All eyes were going back and forth between Ray and I. Ray stood up and said, Yes, it's time you all knew. He crossed the room to where I was standing and pretended to make out with me as he dry-humped my leg. Everyone started laughing and moved on. Except Virginia. She looked unconvinced and troubled. I never confronted Dick about going through my desk. Denial and avoidance were the way I managed the situation, and confrontation was not my way. I took my personal things and put them in my car so I could take them home that weekend. Dick, on the other hand, had no problem with confrontation, and made it his mission to tear me down about being a fag, making endless remarks about my queer lover, Ray. I did my best to ignore him, but the pressure was continuing to build in the room. I didn't care about my reputation, but he started to trash Ray's. Ray was getting pulled into my lies, and it put a strain on him as the rumor spread. He was a good sport about it, but it made writing him a letter more problematic, as it would confirm that Dick had indeed found a letter that I had denied existed. The clenching under my eye was now ever-present. I came into the room one afternoon and found Mark studying. He was lying on the floor on his belly, wearing an Oxford shirt, tidy whities and dress socks. The man had a beautiful ass and legs. Hey. I said and walked by him, averting my eyes. He had maintained a neutral position amid the tension. He was pre-law, and I often thought he had a good temperament for it. My brother is gay, he said without looking up. The family's having a hard time, but I'm cool with it. I didn't know what to say or how to respond. Dick must have been talking about me to him. I sat down on my bed and looked at him. He got up without another word, put his stuff away, finished dressing, and left. Carrie and Robert got married that weekend, and I sang at her wedding. He finally got the access to the U.S. he was after. She was so happy and so in love. He was so gay. I took a page from my uncle's playbook and kept looking him in the eyes while thinking, I see you. I did it so aggressively, he eventually avoided making eye contact with me altogether. I came home the weekend before Thanksgiving. Wendy had asked me to record the show Michael and Ken were in that Saturday. I set up the camcorder and tripod atop the light booth at the back of the auditorium. I was slightly above the set, dead center. They were great together. They had natural chemistry, and I was jealous of it. Howie was running the light board in the booth beneath me. He never made another move on me. I never discussed it with Michael. I didn't want to think or talk about it. It distressed me in a way I didn't understand. I hadn't seen Michael the last few weeks. His schedule didn't allow for it. As I watched him on stage, I knew I had fallen in love with him. I'd fantasized about the man in various ways for almost a decade. It was inevitable once I started having sex with him. I thought how ridiculous the whole thing was. I had no claim on him. We had no future. We could never be more than whatever the hell it was we were. Lovers? At intermission, Wendy introduced me to his mother. She was a gentle soul, who was clearly proud of her son. His father was out of the picture. I didn't know if he had died or they had divorced. And I realized in that moment, I didn't really know anything about him. Our relationship was limited to movies, flirting, sex, and pillow talk. I was back up on the light booth waiting for the second act to begin and noticed three of my sister's friends in the audience. We waved hello. Act two began. When the show ended, it received thunderous applause. I was back on the main auditorium floor between the light booth and the door to the box office, packing up the equipment, when my sister's friends came over and said hello. We made small talk, and from behind me, someone whispered close against my ear, Come out for a drink with us. I was assaulted by the smell of Paul Sebastian Cologne and Benson and Hedge's cigarette smoke. My eyes went wide. I felt the blood drain from my face, and my heart began to race. I was back in my bedroom, Pip pinning me to my mattress and saying, You'll like it, in my ear. I turned around. He was standing less than a foot from me, smiling and arching his eyebrows. Yeah, come out with us, my sister's friends encouraged. 
I don't have my wallet. I lied. I also wasn't 21, but that wasn't the point. I'll buy, Pip said and smiled broadly. He looked good. He was more muscled than the last time I'd seen him and had a shorter hairstyle that suited his still-tanned face. I was frozen in place like a deer in the headlights. Fine, I'll go, I said flatly. I finished storing the camcorder and drove to the bar. I felt compelled to go, as if there was no other option. I'll be coming to your campus to see my niece in a couple of weeks, Pip said. I'll have to stop by and see you. Let's exchange numbers and give me your dorm address. My sister's friends were listening to and watching the whole exchange. I didn't want to be rude. I couldn't have a scene. I didn't want anything getting back to my sister that would seem odd or unusual. I felt trapped. I gave him my campus phone number and address. I didn't even think to make something up. He asked. I supplied. After one drink, I said my goodbyes and left. I got into my car and was shaking so badly I could barely get my key in the ignition. Thanksgiving came and went. I never gave Ray a letter. Dick's snooping ruined that approach. And I needed more time. I was tired of living in fear. Fear of being murdered. Fear of being happy. Fear of being me. I felt as if life was closing in on me and I couldn't find any open space. The week after Thanksgiving, I saw the counseling center therapist for the first time. He was a grad student at the college. That's what you got for free. I wasn't sure how things would go. His name was Julio. He was Latino, and so I assumed Catholic. The Catholic Church had a despicable position on homosexuality, and I was on guard from the moment I made that series of connections. Our first session was basically backstory and exposition, and we set up a schedule to meet every Wednesday. Because my issue with Dick was the most problematic, we started with my relationship with my brother, given they were so similar. I told him about what he'd done to me when I was younger, but I didn't tell him I was struggling with my sexual identity. I was silenced by my assumptions I made as to his being Catholic, what was going on in the world relevant to AIDS, and all the stereotyping society heaped on gay people. I also didn't know if a grad student could help me, and didn't want transcripts or medical records to read homosexual. Over the coming weeks, we also covered my mother and father a bit. I couldn't bring myself to tell him I had once offered my father a blowjob. I couldn't imagine ever saying the words out loud, and I still carried tremendous guilt and shame about it. I feared rejection from everyone in my life, either for what I'd done in my past or for who I may be in my future. Nothing changed in my dynamic with Dick, but evidently something was changing in me, at least as far as the core group was concerned. They thought I was growing bitter. I think I was just growing. The group's concern for me began when Susan and Sarah conspired to get Virginia and I alone. The premise was that everyone was going to meet at Virginia's house to go and see a live ballet production of the Nutcracker Suite in the beginning of December. I'd never seen it, but loved the music, so I was all in. As it got closer to the performance, people began canceling for various reasons, and the night I showed up at Virginia's house, it was just the two of us. Her crush had deepened, and it was an awkward evening. Even though I told Susan and Sarah from the start I wasn't interested in her, they had fueled her hopes nonetheless, hoping that perhaps, under the right circumstances, I would fall for her. It didn't happen, and after the ballet, without so much as a goodnight kiss, Virginia was deeply hurt, which turned into anger and resentment. Sarah stopped me one day in the dorms. I don't understand why you don't like Virginia, Again, the expectation that I needed to explain myself and my lack of interest to her. I loved Sarah, but her exuberance was sometimes annoying. I'm not interested. Is there someone else? Not really. Exactly why, then, do you not like her? It's more complicated than simply not liking her. Someday I'll tell you all about it, I said. She gave me a look of open frustration. I promise, by the end of the week you'll understand. I was working up the courage to come out to them all. Two days later, Sarah came to my room and said we needed to talk. We went to the music building and found an empty practice room. They were soundproof and an ideal place for a private conversation. The reason Virginia and I won't work is, I'm gay. She said nothing. She had recently told me she felt I was a person of great integrity. How's my integrity holding up? I asked. I think this falls in the realm of integrity, she said. 
I was relieved. Do you plan to tell anyone else? Not at the moment. The only reason I'm telling you is because you're kind of driving this discord. She looked offended. I don't mean you're doing it intentionally. I just mean you and Susan won't let this drop. And it needs to drop. I felt if you understood why I wasn't interested in Virginia, if you knew it had nothing to do with her as a person in any way, then you could maybe move on instead of keep pushing us together. She considered my words. I think you should tell Susan. Why? Her younger brother told her that he thinks he's gay, and she isn't taking it very well. It might do her some good to know that her brother isn't the freak she thinks he is, or alone. It seemed to me suddenly that my friends, who always professed to be open-minded and forward-thinking, didn't mind someone being gay, so long as they stayed in their closet. Once someone actually acknowledges they're homosexual, few seem to take it well. Or she'll think I'm a freak and lose all respect for me, I said. True, she replied. In the end, I decided not to tell her. If that was her reaction to her own brother's disclosure, I didn't see how she'd react more positively to mine. Paul knew I was struggling with school and life and would write me letters most weeks. He'd mail them to the campus so I'd have something to look forward to. After I'd read a letter from Paul, realizing that Dick was going through my things, I would put it in my car. I'd wait until I got home to write a reply. I was doing in-class teacher observations in my home county the last few weeks of the semester. I would come home the night before, then head to the school early the next morning. I came home one night for an observation the next morning. Before going to bed, I wrote a reply to Paul's most recent letter, which read in part, It's funny how much a person's life can change from one small event. If I had never tried out for Oliver, I would have never gotten to know such wonderful people. You, Wendy, and Michael. I wouldn't have house sat for you, and I wouldn't have had the chance to have a relationship with Michael. I really appreciate your friendship. You've made my being gay a bit less painful. I took the letter inside a pile of other papers and spiral notebooks on the desk in my bedroom and went to bed. The next morning, I got up and left for my observation. It was a Friday, and since I'd be coming home for the weekend anyway, I left my school things at home. This was the last weekend before finals, and I needed to cram. After lunch, I kept thinking about all the times as a child, my mother had tossed my bedroom and gone through my things. Items were often deleted from my life, with no discussion or reason. Something I'd have put away in a drawer or my closet would just disappear. It was like that up until my parents divorced, and then it stopped. But I couldn't stop thinking about it that day, and then I realized I was getting one of my feelings. I knew my mother had gone through my things. I knew she had found and read the letter. I was certain of it. On the drive back home from the high school, I began to get angry, which was not a feeling I often experienced. I'm sure I was angry a lot, but I pushed it out of my conscious mind because I was afraid my anger would overwhelm me, as it had my father and brother. The angrier I got, the stronger the spasm under my eye became, and that's when I realized it was my tell. Even though I may not have been conscious of it, the clenching under my eye meant I was angry about something. When I walked into the house, my mother was standing at the top of the steps up to the living room. I had barely closed the door behind me. So, how long have you thought you were gay? Epilogue It took me decades to understand why I agreed to meet Pip and my sister's friends for a drink that night. So often in movies and TV, there is an inappropriate expectation that a rape victim or survivor should fight their attacker. The reality is, that is not usually what happens, and is part of the victim-blaming culture. Well, you should have. You could have. Why didn't you? When Pip was preparing to rape me, I initially attempted to resist. I said no. I asked him to stop. I pleaded with him to stop. But he literally had the higher ground, and I was physically unable to escape. And then I dissociated and left my body in order to get through the experience. When he came up behind me that night in the theater and whispered in my ear, I was instantly re-traumatized. I had told no one about my rape. Not a soul. Not even Paul, who had become my confidant and mentor. I couldn't discuss it because I could barely hold it in my body or my head. In listening to Me and That Train, I caught a couple of instances where my brain was still glitching around the timeline of my rape. Objectively, it's fascinating to me. But within my skin, it's frustrating as hell. 
My sister's friends were lovely people, and I was caught in an emotional bond. I didn't want to disappoint them. I didn't want them saying, We ran into your brother. He was all weird and rude to us. It would have cascaded into a series of questions I wasn't ready to answer. It was easier to try and please everyone than it was to stand up for myself, because I didn't know how. I was buried in my guilt and shame and secrets. The same could be said for my issues with Dick. There were processes in place that I could have pursued to get a different room or to try to resolve the conflict, but it never occurred to me to pursue them. I was so averse to confrontation or rocking the boat. There's a response to trauma called fawning, which in a nutshell is when one shifts instantly to a people-pleasing posture, even pleasing one's abuser. I tried to please Pip and my sister's friends in order to survive having been re-traumatized. Going to the bar that night made me feel weak and complicit, but in reality, it was my brain's survival strategy. Comply. Get through. Survive. Move forward. If you've ever found yourself behaving this way, it doesn't mean you're weak. It's a coping mechanism for complex trauma. Don't beat yourself up. Easier said than done, I know. Talk to a therapist. There are ways through it if you do the work. The situation with Virginia was something I'd never encountered before. There's a sense of entitlement in my friend's demands that I somehow account for myself and my lack of interest in her. I had grown up being told what I felt, what I thought, what I saw, and how I should respond to any given situation. The group's entitled demand that I explain myself for not wanting to go out with Virginia fed my guilt and my sense that I was somehow lying to them by keeping something entirely private and personal to myself. I always had to explain myself. I always had to defend my position. My reasons why I did or didn't do or feel anything were not something they were entitled to know, unless I chose to tell them. But I didn't have healthy boundaries at that point in my life, and so I embraced their sense of entitlement and felt as if I had betrayed them, because they felt betrayed. You don't owe anyone an explanation. You don't have to tell anyone anything personal about yourself unless you choose to. When someone asks you a question, you do not have to answer it. I'd rather not say. When someone asks you to do something you don't want to do, you do not have to do it. I prefer not to do that. You have the inherent right to say no. I probably spent $50,000 in therapy before I learned that I had the right to say no and that it was a complete sentence. Work to establish your boundaries, then invest the energy to maintain them. People will always push them. People will always feel entitled to invade them. Our personal boundaries are among our most precious possessions. Treat them accordingly.